0: So uh, anybody remember the, the classic Disney movie, Pinocchio? Anybody remember Pinocchio? Yeah. Um, our family, we've loved Disneyland over the years, but um, I, the first time that you go to Disneyland, you take your kid on Pinocchio ride, the Pinocchio ride, like you instantly realize how dark the movie actually was, and so you had like Stromboli, who's this evil puppeteer who beats the kids and yells at them and then locks them in cages, and then all the little boys, they go to Pleasure Island, and they escape, and they smoke cigars, which, you know, as little boys do, and they get drunk, you know, as little boys do, and they turn into donkeys and vandalize stuff and commit arson, which is a real feel-good movie, right? So anyway, if you haven't seen it, it's an excellent R-rated kids movie from the 1940s, um, they were simpler times, people, all right? All we had was cigars and drinking. Um, but Disney is actually in the business of selling, when you stop and think about it, they're in the business of selling happiness or at least the illusion of happiness. Uh, when you think about you know, most of the Disney movies, especially the animated movies that we love, like ultimately, they're stories about characters or about people who are unhappy, And they're unhappy because they feel stuck or empty or lonely or small or insignificant or like there's more to life than what they're currently experiencing. And so they have to learn how to cook so they can be a chef or they got to fall in love or escape the tower or, you know, cross the sea or let it go or find their dad or chase their dream or recapture their glory days or become the hero, all these things, right? And it's all so that they can find fulfillment and be happy but it's not just it's not just disney right and it's not just movies the truth is it's it's humanity and it's it's life right we all all of us every single one of us want to be happy i've never met a single person that was like i wish i was less happy in fact for decades now and surveys done that are all over the world in every country of the world doesn't matter if they're westernized doesn't matter if they're a developing country doesn't doesn't matter where you go for decades All over the world, people have consistently, when surveyed, identified happiness as their primary goal for their life. And in our culture, it runs really deep in our DNA. I mean, it predates the founding of our country even, right? It's right there in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we don't really need to be convinced why, like why happiness matters or why it's good, right? Among other things, happy people have better relationships they live longer, they have better health, they make more money. All of those things are great, right? The problem is that we get confused as to which of the things comes first. Is it the happiness that comes first? And because we're happy that we have great relationships and better health and make more money? Or is it that we, if we have great relationships and good health and we make a lot of money, then we're happy? And maybe the, the question that we need to start with this morning for our purposes is, why would we talk about this at church? I mean, does God care about our happiness? Now, depending on your experience at church, you may have different ideas about how to answer that. Because in some churches, in some Christian circles, in some religious experiences, the churches and the leaders would say, no, God doesn't really care about our happiness. He really only cares about our holiness. That God may be a father, but he's more of a cold and distant kind of angry father. And he's had about enough of you and your act. And what he really wants for you is to sit down and straighten up and shut up and get your crap together. And if we're honest and we look around our culture and the way that people talk about God or their concept of God, that's really the dominant image in our culture but I don't think that's who God is at all. In fact, that's not who we see him to be in the scriptures. I mean, if you just took a step back for a second, think about if you're a coffee person, right? Think about the moment in the morning when you get that and you hold that fresh brewed hot cup of coffee of your favorite coffee or cappuccino or latte or whatever it is that you love and you can feel it warming your hands and because the barista loves you, they made a special heart and the creamer on the top of it. And the aroma is intoxicating. You can feel the steam and the warmth on your face and your whole body is just like anticipating the moment that that delicious life-giving liquid flavor and drug will wash over your taste buds and flood your body with, and your brain with just pure unadulterated joy, right? And for that moment, the world is perfect. And God, help anybody who speak to you before that moment. But the truth is, is God didn't have to give us our senses. He didn't have to create us where we could see and smell and taste and feel. He didn't have to create us with the capacity for love or the ability to perceive beauty. I mean, if you have a dog, if you're a dog owner, as great as your dog is, and he's probably a really good boy, he's are never going to catch him sitting off by himself, pondering the meaning of his life while he watches the sunset taking in its beauty because he don't care. And so how cruel would God have to be to create us with the capacity for things like pleasure and joy and happiness, and then allow us to experience them, but then call us to a life where they're, well, just incidental or, well, completely absent from our life. How cruel would he have to be to to do that? And then there's the other end of the spectrum, right, in churches that maybe believe something different, churches and leaders and pastors, you've probably heard this one too, where they tell us that God's goal is to bless us. And the primary way that he wants to bless us is by making us rich and powerful and successful. And in fact, if you sort of extrapolate how they're talking about it, it looks like that the proof that God has blessed you in your life is that you are those things. The only problem is, is that we know people, we've all known of people who are all those things. They are rich and powerful and successful, but their life doesn't really reflect or look anything like what God would seem to be like. And on top of that, so many of them aren't even happy. So which is it? Like, does God care or not care? Well, the truth is, it's, it's probably not, it's, it's not either of those answers, Well, here's what I can tell you. There are 2,700 passages or verses in the Bible that talk about, mention ideas like joy and happiness and pleasure and gladness and cheer and laughter. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse seven, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is called the good news of happiness. Many of the the Psalms or Proverbs begin with the phrase, happy is the one who, or happy is the person who the root word that gets translated into English, like as the word blessed in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven begins with these, this list of beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed is the one. The root word for that just literally means to be happy. I mean, even Jesus himself, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, of all the things he was accused of, it wasn't being grumpy or serious or selfish. He was accused of having too much fun in his life, of going to too many parties, of enjoying his life too much. And so as it turns out, sacred doesn't have to mean somber or serious. If you grew up in church like I did, sacred always meant those things. It always meant you better straighten up. It always meant you better not laugh. It always meant you don't smile. If God is serious and you better take him serious and this is a sacred moment, then you have to be somber and sad and morose and like just. But it doesn't actually, when you look at the life of Jesus, actually translate that way. And so. What is it that we're talking about when we talk about happiness? Are we even all talking about the same thing? Because we have all different ways of talking about what it looks like. In fact, in the church, sometimes like this, this conversation gets really mixed up because I've been in churches a lot where, where they will push out the idea of happiness and just, no, no God doesn't care about ha- It's all about joy, and joy is different from happiness. And, and that may be, you know, and, and part of the reason is because we don't all have the same language or definition. And so I, I wanted to actually start here and kind of give you a definition that I'm working from when it comes to this series, that happiness is the experience of joy and contentment, optimism that's connected to the belief that your life is good, that it's valuable, and that it has meaning. And I can tell you, in my opinion, based on that def- definition, God definitely wants you to be happy. Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10 says, "'I have come that they may have life "'and have it to the full.'" Now, God forbid that we reduce what Jesus is saying in this moment to, to, to him, being, him just saying, like, I came to just make you happy because that's, that's not all that he's saying, right? But for everything Jesus is declaring in this moment about himself, it definitely includes a life of joy, a life of contentment, a life full of hope, a life that's full of good and that's valuable and has meaning, a life that has happiness. Now, I admit that my definition is a little bit long and clunky and maybe nuanced and layered. And, and, but the, the reason why we started here is because I think that's where the problems actually begin for us. Because happiness is broader and deeper and more expansive than we often actually just wanna think about or what we actually reduce it to. Because we have all these shorthand ways of talking about it, of talking about how we experience it or what it looks like or feels like and, and describing it. But, but that's where we sort of get tripped up because often we mistake the shorthand ways that we describe happiness as being actually shortcut ways to discover it. And it just never, ever works. And I, I think that's why in a lot of the churches that I've been in, why we sort of, you know, I see people shy away from the idea of happiness altogether and just talk about joy. But I don't think that you can actually have joy. I don't think that you can actually have happiness and not have joy. Like they're, they're interconnected. So we're going to get into all of this stuff in the next few weeks, and but here's what I want you to know, is that in this series, like we're going to be really, really intentionally and intensely spiritual, that I'm going to give you a lot of stuff from the scriptures, as, as always, but it's also going to be very, very practical, because... In all of the research and all of the the reading and all of the the preparation that's gone into this series, what what you actually begin to discover, you begin to start to read books, is that science, whether you're reading psychology books or neuroscience books or sociology books, that, that they start talking about that we're just beginning to discover what God has been kind of telling us in the scriptures all along. And so the question then that we arrive at is if we all want to be happy, and God wants us to be happy, why are so many of us not happy? I mean, do do we just have to decide to be happy and then be happy? I mean, have you ever had somebody say that, right? Have you ever had somebody tell that to you? You just need to be happy. You just got to decide to be happy. Like, I've heard that a lot. And probably like you, I feel like I've tried that at different times in my life. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And so then what? What, what? What do you do it doesn't. And then there's the reality where it just seems like some people are just more naturally predisposed to being happier than other people. And what what do you do with that? Are they faking it? Or is it, you know, what's going on there? So I I wanted to kind of give you a breakdown um, as we jump into this this morning uh, about what happiness looks like from, you know, how it's possible to influence the happiness in your life. And so what science tells us is that when it What they've determined when it comes to your happiness is that 50% of our happiness is actually your composition, it, it's your makeup. It's determined by genetics. It's almost hard-coded into your DNA. It's your personality. It's your general disposition. It's your inherited brain chemistry. It, it's the, what was imprinted on you in your early childhood and your family of origin. But as you grow into an adulthood, like 50% of your happiness is just a set point. It's a baseline. And you can influence it a little bit, but it's more incremental. There's not, there's not a whole lot of changing that's gonna happen with that 50%. There's nothing you can do about it. Here's where it gets interesting. Then there's 10% of our happiness that is circumstantial. How much money you make, where you live, the kind of stuff you have, you know, your general health, your overall relationships, that 10% is circumstantial, which I think is just mind-blowing because what that's telling us is even if you were to somehow you were able to kind of grab everything that you're chasing and you won't because you can't because It's a moving target, but even if you could gather everything that you're after and you could make whatever that number is in your mind that you think you want to make, and you could get your dream house and drive your dream car, and everything was perfect in your family, like even if you reached that peak sort of dream place in your mind, you would at most get a 10% bump in your happiness. And that is crazy when you think about how much time and money and energy we spend trying to change our circumstances just for a little bit of happiness and it's maybe even more ridiculous than that because what they tell us is that circumstantial bumps in happiness are temporary they usually only allow they usually only last for about 30 to 60 days so it's why you can actually experience something that you've been wanting your whole life and about th- 2 months later You want a new one, because that one no longer does it for you, right? Because your happiness bumps and then it comes back down to its set point. And yet we spend all of our time and energy trying to think about how do we get more money and how do we get more stuff and how do I fix this relationship and how do I get just chasing the next little hit bump of dopamine, pleasure, happiness. So the final forty percent of our happiness is actually determined and made up of our practices. I tried really hard, you guys, for a third C word. And if you're a little bit like (laughs) anal, like me, like I spent a lot of time with a thesaurus and I just could not find a C word that worked there. So I apologize. But what they tell us is that 40% of our happiness is it's comes from intentional activity. It's how you arrange your schedule. It's the people that you put around you. It's what you put into your body. It's what you choose to think about and focus on. It's the principles that you live by. And, and I don't want you to miss this because this is huge. You have a significant amount of power to impact how you feel about your life and how you experience your own life even if you didn't hit the genetic lottery where you're one of those people that just that that base 50% where you're just like boom I'm ready I'm happy let's go even if you didn't hit that genetic lottery even if life continues to throw you curveball after curveball from circumstances you're not stuck like you can actually change your life and begin to move towards a life of contentment and value and meaning and purpose and happiness so let me tell you what you probably already know That in spite of us pursuing it, happiness isn't something that we can chase down and capture. It's something that we have to construct and create in our own lives. It comes from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not a feeling. It's not a state of mind. It's a mindset that we take to our life. What's interesting, and here's where we're going to turn the corner and begin to look in the scriptures is that when it comes to happiness, all of the wisdom that God gives us in the scriptures is aimed at that last 40% that we have control over. See, the Bible doesn't really speak to your biology. It doesn't tell you that you're doomed because you were born a certain way. There's very little in the scriptures about how to change your circumstances, but it is chock full of wisdom and instruction about how you choose to, lo- to, to live, about how you choose to structure your life, about what you think about and what you build your life on and the kind of relationships you have and who you put around you and the pursuits that you ultimately make your life about. So let me give you an example. So as it turns out, quite a bit of our happiness has to do with how and what you think about. It has to do with what you choose to focus on. Specifically, the research tells us that, that generally, p- people who are happy, they do three things regularly when it comes to the way that they think. They avoid overthinking, they express gratitude, and they cultivate being optimistic about their life. Now, Those things make a lot of sense, but some of it doesn't necessarily sound all that spiritual. But here's what I want you to see. Check this out. In Philippians chapter four, beginning with verse four, the apostle Paul, who I mentioned a little while ago, um, he wrote this letter. This is what he says. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. He's going, get happy people. Verse five, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. So don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So he says a lot of stuff in those four verses, but I really don't want you to miss this. The apostle Paul is writing to these people and he's writing to help them understand the full life that Jesus came to bring us and how we actually live it out. And right here in this letter, he talks about those same basic three things I mentioned a second ago from psychology about what happy people does. what happy people do. He says, look, he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about anything. Stop obsessing and overthinking and instead talk to God. And then he goes on. Thank God for all that he's done. Get in the habit of expressing gratitude on a regular basis. And then he says, fix your thoughts on things that are true and right and lovely and admirable and excellent. Cultivate Optimism or think about things that give you hope and fill you with confidence and assurance about life and about faith and about God and about yourself and about the future. Why? Well, here's the reality. You will create the future you think about. Whatever you think about the future, you that's the future you will ultimately create. And so 2,000 years ago, the apostle Paul is talking about the life that you and I were created to live, the life that Jesus came to bring us. And he says, look, if you want a life of joy, because that's how he started this little segment, right? Joy, rejoice, have joy in the Lord. If you want a life of happiness, aim your thoughts, aim your life in this direction. And now 2,000 years later, psychology and neuroscience are saying the same thing basic thing. See, God ultimately wants to change the way that you think. Why? Because he knows changing how you think will change how you live and what you live for and how you experience him and how you experience your life. And so in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the apostle Paul says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think, and so he's going, look, don't copy how other people think. Don't copy how other people live. They're just as lost and broken as you. Don't take the template and paradigm from society about what will make you happy. They don't know, they're just as miserable as you are. They're just trying to, they're just groping around in the dark, trying to figure it out like you. He's going, God has a better life than you, but our lives will only change when our thinking actually changes. So God wants to change the way that you think about everything, about the past and the present and the future, which by the way fits those three things. I mean you think about it, overthinking that obsessive thing that we do is really just a destructive way that we think about our past. And expressing gratitude is how we can make the most of this present moment. And ultimately cultivating optimism is how God really encourages encourages us to frame the future that he's leading us into to step into now again that may not seem that all that spiritual to you but god's not just concerned about your spiritual life he's concerned about your real life and if you have a relationship with jesus all of this stuff applies because jesus the reality is is that he forgives and frees us from the past that he is present and he's with us and helps us in this present moment and because of who he is and because he's with us, anything, and I mean anything, is possible for you in the future. And so all of this is telling us is that our happiness is far more a result of the focus of our thoughts than the facts of our life, of what we choose to think about, of how we choose to perceive what's happening in our life. By the way, really good news. Since um, Happiness is so much about you know, your practices and habits. You can go look this up for yourself. I'm not making it up. It seems self-serving, but it's not. Um, there's tons of data out there and about um, people who are happy. And one of the habits of the most happy people in the world are that they're connected regularly at a church, that they regularly attend church. So way to go. You're on your way to being happy. No wonder you're smiling. Because you're here. And if you're watching online, you should come try it out. (laughs) So, um, there's a really interesting story in the Old Testament that we're going to spend the last few minutes of our time together talking about and looking at because it illustrates how our thinking shapes our experience and our reality. So, it's about a guy named Naaman. And um, as we read it, though, I, I don't want you just to pay attention to him, I want you to watch the way the different people in the story act and react. And, the, and ultimately, because you can see the things that they're doing or think about the way that they're thinking as the story is unfolding. And, and so I want you to notice things like the overthinking. I want you to notice the the, the moments of, of the expressions of gratitude. I want you to notice, like, think about the story in terms of like the optimism and the faith that's involved. Um, and so it's found in 2 Kings chapter five. Uh, and this is what it says. It says, now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. And he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. The story, um, the, the storyteller says it no, like all super nonchalantly, like it's no big deal. But him having leprosy is a really, really big deal because leprosy, was a death sentence and it was a slow, painful death sentence for them. And what I want you to see is that it doesn't matter how great you are or what you achieve. Nobody was above this guy. He was an incredible warrior. He had achieved all kinds, like he was at the pinnacle of his life. It doesn't matter how many victories you've had. It doesn't matter how thick the armor that you wear. Life comes for us all. The story continues. It says, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she'd ser- she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So we don't actually know at this point how Naaman is processing and dealing with his condition. But man, in this part of the story, I love this servant girl. I mean, talk about being undefeatable. I mean, think about her life for a second. She was taken captive, stolen from her home, carried off to a different land, and she's now given as a slave to this guy Naaman and his wife as a servant. So she has every right to be bitter, she has every right to be hateful and hurtful and spiteful. How easy would it have been for her to just be quiet? He's got a disease that's going to kill him, right? She has every right to secretly celebrate that her master now has this deadly, painful, incurable disease. To just be silent, let him die off, because maybe she gets set free. But she, she's not any of those things. Instead, She's like super helpful. She's like, Oh, you got leprosy? I know a guy. You got to see my leprosy guy. He can do it. And she gives him a referral. You got to go check this guy out. So, verse six says, The letter that he took, speaking of Naaman, took with him to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he's like, wow, What? Am I God? Can I kill someone and bring them back to life? You're basically, basically like, you're dead. I'm not bringing you back. There's no hope. He's like, why are you sending me this guy with someone to be cured of leprosy? Your king is trying to pick a fight with me. He's trying to pick a quarrel. He's very paranoid, right? But then Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes and he sent him this message and said, why have you torn your robes? have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Isn't it crazy how two people can get the same exact news, they can get the same exact message and have completely different reactions to it? The same exact report. Guy shows up with a letter, says, I'm here, I have leprosy, I'm here to be healed. The king's like, what? And just loses it. Elisha hears the same news, he's like, come on over. Like, I, got, I got you. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because of what they believed. It's possible because of how they thought. By the way, is it just not like, like Elisha is just a baller in this story that you're going to see. Like, he's like, I don't know, like, hopefully you got a backup kingly robe king. I don't know why you tore your robes. Like, what's going on? He's like, I just imagine him saying, I mean, did he, just imagine the way he's saying it like just send him to me and he will know like he lowers his voice that there's a prophet in Israel and the story goes on so naaman went with his horses and his chariots and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house <laughs> this is amazing Elisha's like come see me and then he doesn't even go out to see him he's just like do this you'll be healed Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. The end. Now, Naaman wasn't entirely sure of what he believed about God at this story, at this point in the story, but I want you to step back and think about his position for a moment. He was desperate for help, but you don't make this kind of journey. You don't end up at this place in the story without feeling pretty optimistic that there's a chance that you could be healed and your future is gonna be better than what the diagnosis is. And so he takes action because how we think determines what we do. And here's the crazy thing. He gets here, he gives the letter to the king. The king's like, I can't do that. Elisha's like, come on over, but I got you. He goes to Elisha's house and he gets exactly what he wants. He hears exactly what he wants to hear. Elisha tells him exactly what to do And to be honest It's a pretty quick and easy fix for a terminal disease Hey, go down there and get in the river seven times And you'll be good You'd think he'd be excited, right? Well, let's take a look Verse 11 Naaman became angry I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy And call on the name of the Lord his God And heal me Thought he had like a magic wand Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar, aren't they better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? And so Naaman turned and stormed off or went off in a rage. This is crazy, you guys. He gets the very thing he traveled. He gets his miracle. The cure for his disease is within his reach. All he's got to go is, do is go down to the river and get in. But instead of celebrating he's sulking. Instead of like stomp dancing his way down there in a happy dance to the river because he's about to get healed, he's stomping off in a rage. And notice what he said, because this is what overthinking looks like. I thought he would. I expected him to. Why should I have to do that? Right? He, He didn't go as he expected. And so he starts rehearsing and replaying it over and over. If that ever happened to you, or something happens, and you can almost you almost know the internal narrative. Does he know who I am? I'm naming. Does he know my reputation? You know how many, how many battles I've won for them? Does he know who I am? Like I've reached the pinnacle. Like, do you understand like what this letter says that I got from the game? Do you know who I am? I don't want to go down to the river. Have you ever tried to, I don't want to get wet? try to put armor on after you're wet, man. I'd be chafed by the time I get home. I don't want none of that. I thought he was going to come out and this was going to be magic. He was going to wave his hand over me and I was going to be good. And he's playing all of that. Who does he think? Why? I thought he, I expected him to, why shouldn't I? Isn't that what we do? I mean, that is textbook overthinking. See, the the truth is, when we step into faith, it is extremely empowering, but when fear takes hold and we start kind of spiraling and spinning, it's overwhelming and exhausting. And when you believe that better is possible, you will take initiative, that you will take action, you'll pursue difficult things, you'll push through setbacks and challenges, and you will not give up. And yet here in this moment, this simple little thing He's traveled all this way, gone through all this journey, pushed through all these obstacles to let this little assignment keep him from his life being changed. It goes on, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he tells you just go down to the river and wash and be cleansed? And so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had told him. And then his flesh was restored. And it wasn't restored to the skin of a 45-year-old man. It wasn't restored to the skin of a man who'd been in battle after battle with all of his scars. No, his flesh became like the smooth skin of a baby's bottom. See, I love this part of the story because aren't you grateful for people who aren't afraid when your life is messy? They're not afraid of you. People who will come find you when you are tripping out, when you have stormed off and you're spiraling and you're talking all crazy and you're about to do something stupid and you're about to miss out on some opportunity or you're about to wreck something that's been handed to you and sort of gift wrapped for you. See, the truth is part of building a life of happiness is changing the way that you think. It's avoiding overthinking and it's avoiding over, uh, obsessing over things that, that, that just didn't go how you thought they were going to go. We're, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about this next week, but we all have thoughts and emotions, but our, our thoughts and our emotions are not us. The reason our thinking matters so much in our lives. And the reason it matters so much for our happiness is that your thinking will actually keep you from expressing gratitude. It will keep you from acting if you don't think there's any hope. Your thinking will have you catastrophizing the future and thinking about all the worst case scenarios and then begin to justify some really unhealthy and destructive choices and behaviors. Your thinking will ultimately sabotage your faith and your life. And your happiness fortunately Naaman has some friends that come around him and help him take a step back take a deep breath regain perspective and help him realize this thing's right there it's all for the taking so they come to him they're like man you got an audience with the prophet do you know how hard that is like this dude just doesn't he doesn't just see anybody and everybody You got, you got. He he actually heard about your case and he took your case, and then he gave you the advice he wanted. And the thing he told you to do is simple. All you got to go down is go down to the river and wash and be cleansed. And you can tell that, like they're going, like there's a lot to be optimistic about here. There's hope here, and they have all this gratitude, and they're hoping that sort of rubs off on him, so that he can actually experience the thing. That he was looking for. And ultimately he does, and his life is changed. He's healed. Now, if it's possible for us to miss the point, we almost always will. That is usually what I've experienced in my own life. So I don't want you to get hung up on the wrong detail here. Because there's no guarantee that you'll get the miracle that you're hoping for when the time comes. You might but you might not. The miracle of this story is not the takeaway. See, because you can't control that. You can't control how God moves in your life and when. Naaman's healing was a big deal, no doubt about it. But here's the reality. That healing is circumstantial, which means it falls into that 10% bucket that we talked about earlier. And I know if you've never been through something like this, it's hard for us to fathom and wrap our minds around how somebody could be given a terminal diagnosis or get a, a debil- have a debilitating condition, and yet in the middle of that, experience all of the joy and happiness in their life that everybody else does. But it's true and it's possible. See, what, what we can actually learn from Naaman's story is the power that we have over that 40% of our life of what we do of what we choose to think about the things that are happening happening to us. Because you can't control the events of your life, even if you want to, and you want to, and you try, but you can't. But you can control how you respond to those things. You can take action. You can change your thinking. You can't control every thought, but you can control what you think about. And you can begin to allow God to transform your life by renewing your mind. You can actually choose to develop a habit and a routine where you practice and express gratitude for the big stuff and the little stuff in your life. And even if you are sort of pessimistic and negative by nature, you can actually live in faith and cultivate hope and optimism for the future. So if our happiness is more a product of of our focus than it is the facts of our life, when it comes to our life, We need to focus our attention on those things in our life that will help us take action in the direction of health and hope and wholeness and faith and God and life and happiness. Because a lot of times the things that we pursue to make ourselves happy actually have the exact opposite effect. Finally, the very thing that that ultimately changed Naaman's life was an encounter with God. In fact, if you, we don't have time, but if you continue to read the story, he goes back to Elisha and he says, this I know, I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's a God, that he's real and that he lives here. And he's like, I've grown up worshiping and sacrificing to all these other gods, but now I know the real God. See, what changed his life was an encounter with God, and the same is true for us. His faith, Our faith will produce optimism, but they aren't the same thing. Optimism is focused on the future, but the best way for us to have hope for a future is to have a relationship with the one who holds that future. See, the truth is, if you're a Jesus follower, you should be the most optimistic, hope-filled, gratitude-expressing, person on the planet because we've experienced his life and that that is how true and lasting happiness begins you don't step into a relationship with jesus and get instantly happy but you can step into a relationship with jesus and begin to move down a path on a journey of growing into life and freedom happiness as he begins to change the way you think about your life and the world let's pray together